Welcome to Aston Meads Business, SMEs Adapting to COVID-19 Challenges. I'm Steve Dyson, the journalist presenting this regular podcast for Aston Business School. Our podcasts are focusing on the huge economic disruption caused by the coronavirus pandemic, and we're talking to businesses who've been involved with various programmes at Aston Centre for Growth and elsewhere here at Aston. They'll discuss their challenges, share their experiences and explain how they're adapting to the new business world emerging in the wake of the pandemic. We'll also be interviewing some of Aston Business School's top academics and experts, getting their valuable insight, analysis and advice for SMEs. The next two episodes will be looking at how different Asian business sectors have dealt with COVID-19 and joining us online is Professor Munda Ram. Now Munda is the Director of the Centre for Research in ethnic minority entrepreneurship here at Aston. And he's one of the UK's leading authorities on small businesses in what is often termed the BAME community. Hello to you, Monda. Hi, Steve. Good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you too, Monda. Um, now, today's episode focuses on a sector that's close to all of our hearts, the famous Balti House or Curry House business world. Please bear with us. We're still carrying out all our recordings remotely online to make sure we conform to the government's safe distancing advice. The first businessman I want to speak to um, is Shahab Udin. Uh, Shahab is the owner of Streetly Balti. Uh, hello to you, Shahab. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks very much for joining us on today's podcast, Shahab. Um, a quick question about you and your business. Just tell us when it started and and your links with the wider Bangladeshi restaurant industry. I've been in the restaurant trade now for about 27 years. We opened our first restaurant, the one that I'm running right now, um, Strictly Balti, um, back in 1993. We've had a few others in between. Um, notably the lodge in Shenston for the last 20 years. Just tell us a bit more about um, about your links with the wider Bangladeshi restaurants industry in the area. 80% of restaurants in uh, Indian restaurants in the United Kingdom are generally Bangladeshi owned. Um, and we all sort of run them via our local communities where we get members of staff, um, front or kitchen, um, we train ourselves within the within the actual restaurant trade as well. Um, so yeah, we have um, good connections uh, within our local communities. Um, but so in the last couple of years, I've um, managed to uh, have my friendship circle has widened um, and up and down the country. I'm in contact with various restauranters um, right the way up in Scotland down to um, down uh, uh, Lands End as well. So. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, I've got a good network at the moment going. Now, with the oncome of COVID-19, Shahab, can you tell us how that's affected your business and what your business has had to do to get through? Well, COVID-19 came completely at the wrong time for me. Um, I'd just been back to Streetly Balti roughly about two years, and I'd just started to pick the business up, and I was just looking at the business and seeing that, you know, We've turned the corner, we on an upward path and we're getting better. And bang, COVID-19 come along and completely blew everything out the window for us. Um, I had to shut the restaurant down uh, because one of my chefs there said he was not feeling well. Um, obviously, at that time, we couldn't tell whether it's COVID-19, whether it's a flu, whether it's a cold, um, but the symptoms were all the same. So... 
I, I didn't want to take the risk. So uh, I, I shut the restaurant down and we, we had to stay shut for um, four weeks. Um, so during those four weeks, it was uh, very stressful. All sorts of scenarios would play through my head daily about how, how I'm going to get through this, uh, what we're going to do, how I'm going to pay the staff's wages. Um, the furlough payments weren't coming through at that time. The grant wasn't coming through at that time. The staff were like, oh, we're going to get some wages. I need some money. Um, so it, it was it was quite stressful during that four-week period. And since those first four weeks, um, have you have you reopened in some capacity now? Yes, we've, we've reopened now um, as a takeaway and a delivery service. Um First couple of weeks are difficult. Um, new social distancing work, uh, working practices uh, meant I've got a couple of less boys in the kitchen now. Um, plus, I, I re- reduced the menu to make it easier. But I, have you ever seen an Indian menu? They're still massive. But yeah, the first couple of weeks were very difficult. Um, we struggled to get orders out on time because people were also... Um, they hadn't had a curry for quite some time, so they were desperate to have a curry. So we were inundated, um, and then we were struggling to cope. But we've got a balance now. It's been, we're on our fourth week now. We've got a balance. The customers have got a balance. I, I, I'm lucky. I have a very good uh, local client base, and I'm able to put notes notices out on Facebook and uh, explain to the customers what we're going through, and they actually um, comply with me. Takeaway side is good. We've got a lot of orders coming in. It's not as lucrative as a restaurant. It's not mm. financially, it's not the same. The expenses are higher. The workload is is heavier. Um, but the rewards at the end of the week are a lot, lot less. So it, it's, it's ticking us over. It's keeping me going. But it's not the same as a restaurant. Just a quick question, um, as well as the furlough which you had for a few weeks when you when you were closed, mm-hmm. uh, have you been able to access any other funding or grants from the government or any other sources? Well, we've got the local government grant for £10,000, um, which is great because it came just at a time when everybody, all the staff, myself included, were like, OK, we're really getting short of money now. So that came at the right time for me to be able to pay um, people some money and have them... Uh, uh, survive as i said um and then the the furlough came much much later but yes um that has helped it has helped a hell of a lot i just want to talk to you about the wider bangladeshi restaurant trade the people that you know up and down the country and in the balti triangle in birmingham etc and i'm focusing really on, on many of the businesses who haven't got perhaps the links that you've got yourself the networks or even the knowledge to get things like furlough and grants has that really affected some of some some of the other Bangladeshi restaurants? The thing about Bangladeshi restauranters is most of us aren't um, haven't had any real formal education, um, and we've we've come into the businesses via our family, um, via working, and we've picked up um, all the experience that we have on the job experience. I think it's called, yeah. So. Uh, and even with the way that we're running the businesses, we've we've picked them up uh, as we've sort of gone along. So there's a lot of people out there who aren't really formally educated and they're struggling. I, I just talked to one of my friends who's actually a landlord, and he says he's um, he's uh, the people who are renting the restaurant off him. They just uh, up and left um, the business. They just closed the business down. And they couldn't ma- manage it, obviously, and they just uh, closed the business down. They just left. Um, so he's struggling to get a hold of them at the moment. 
Um, but he says if they had applied for the furlough payments and if they had applied for the um, the grant, then they would have actually been okay. But they clearly didn't mm. know, so they they closed and they thought, well, we can't do anything else. We're closing the restaurant and they're going. Um, that's them. The other thing is that I've got a lot of um, friends who have big, big places in uh, on the high street, massive rents, massive rates. Um, the grant is not going to help them that much. It's it, it's, a, it's a drop in the ocean for them. Their expenses are very, very high. Um, and the grant is just a, just a small thing. It, it, it won't help them. If this goes on for another two months, three months, they can't open. Some of them are really um, sitting there stressing and they're looking at, are we going to be able to open back again? Because the debt they're going to accrue by that time, it's, it's going to be difficult for them to continue. So, so it could it could spell the end for some businesses in the Baltic restaurant trade. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. I'm having talked to all of my friends up and down the country. Uh, I'm estimating that at least about thirty percent, twenty five, thirty percent of restaurants, bigger the bigger restaurants, are not going to open back up again. They really aren't. Wow. No. Wow. I mean, just thinking about the future, I know that um, you know that that would be very sad if some businesses can't reopen. But those who do manage to hang on, like yourself, you know, you've got some takeaway trade, uh, you've had some grant assistance, and and where necessary, you've been able to furlough. So, so for those restaurants which are able um, to get through the period, what kind of things are you, Shahab, and and your colleagues across the industry? What kind of things are you thinking about in terms of how you're going to have to adapt? to, if you like, the new normal, where restaurants are going to have to operate in a slightly different way when they reopen? Um, that's something that is a problem for me at the moment. My restaurant is quite small. Um, we've we've built our reputation on being small and cosy. After COVID-19, I don't think cosy and small is going to work. Um, if the government says that restaurants can open again and we have to keep... Uh, uh, two meter distance between tables. I, I'm going to struggle. I don't think I can open up as a restaurant again. Um, there's not enough space. Um, I, if I put two tables in, um, I can't use the rest of the tables. So mm. I, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to um, work around that. If the government say that's the way that you have to open up, we're keeping that two meter space. Um, if we go back to normal, then great. I guess um, as time goes on, we'll find out more, won't we? But I'm, I'm thinking from the early signs um, that restaurants may well have to comply with, with certain restrictions to start with. And perhaps as time goes on, maybe when there's a vaccine, perhaps things will change. So I suppose it's the in-between period. What, how will you adapt to the business? Until um, it's safe to open the restaurant, until COVID-19 is no more and we're allowed to, I think we're probably gonna, I'm probably going to have to stick to um just a takeaway service and if i have any desperate customers who really want to sit down at the restaurant maybe allow one table or two table and that's it i can't, i wouldn't risk taking any more than that and have you heard much from other restaurateurs who you know your network your colleagues in the industry and um, have they talked about how they're going to adapt a lot of them have a lot of the bigger restaurants have at the moment adapted in the sense that they've put on online ordering systems and they're doing the delivery uh, system. But again, they're all saying the same thing. It's not the same as a restaurant. Um, and they're just, at this moment, they're just waiting for the go-ahead 
so that they can open the restaurant again. And, and a lot of them are, would be happy to do it with a two-meter um, distance because if they've got a, a restaurant which has 100 seats, even if they can seat 50 seats, it's better for them to sit 50 bums on seats rather than doing the takeaway because that's where the money is for them. The longer this goes on, the harder it's going to get for them. Financially, obviously, there's a big difference. Um, you're looking at about a 20% um, difference on just the food, but then you're not taking it. If you if you added the wine list, um, the alcohol, then you know there's a there's another 50, 60 percent on top which they're missing right now. My my restaurant's not licensed, so it it's, it doesn't affect me. But the licensed restaurants, they're they're missing that money, that cream on the top that they would make on a bottle of wine, on a bottle of vodka, on, on the beers. They're missing all of that. That's where their income is from. The main income, mm. the food, Indian restaurant food, the curries. Uh, we, we've shot ourselves in the foot. Uh, over the since the last three decades, in the sense that uh, our curries are in harder to cook, they're more labour intensive, but having a price war in the nineties, um, we're still expected to be cheap, um, and and that is that is an issue. So the most of the Indian restaurants don't make any hardly make any money on the food. Um, it's all on the it's all on the license. And do you think that's something which is going to have to change in terms of if you are going to exist as a smaller operation, uh, do you think you're going to have to do something about the pricing to, to, to manage to survive in the meantime before things go back to, to a real normal? Absolutely. Um, pricing is a big issue, especially in the Baltibet, uh, Baltibet in Birmingham, um, because they've, they've built a whole um, industry in, in that Baltibet, the Baltic Triangle, on being cheap and cheerful. That's not going to work anymore. The with COVID nineteen, with the shutdown of all all the industries across the world, um, cost of everything has gone up. It it's unstable. I can buy meat at one price today, and it's another price tomorrow. Um, so, if they're not adjusting their menu prices in line with what's going on in the with the cost of everything at the moment, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle a lot. Um, and everybody, if they want to survive, they need to start pricing correctly um and and taking it from there shahab Erdin from streetly bolty many thanks for joining us it's been really interesting talking to you thank you very much steve thank you for having me now mondra like so many businesses uh, what we all know is that um bolty and curry houses have been hugely impacted by covid19 but what i didn't realize was that curry houses most often run by businesses with Bangladeshi origins, they don't seem to know or they don't know how to or they sometimes don't even want to access the furloughs, the grants, the, the low-cost loans so readily available to mainstream UK businesses. Uh, what are the reasons behind that, Munda? Well, it was a very powerful story, wasn't it, Steve? I think the first thing we need to remember is that uh, Shab's business, a bit like many small business owners, they don't necessarily seek the advice that they perhaps should do. This is a quirk of many small business owners. Many small business owners start their business because they just want to run it for themselves. Having said that, I think the situation is particularly acute for BAME businesses, as you refer to them, because they often rely on informal networks rather than formal public sector institutions. Now, that's positive in the sense that they go to people they trust, but it can also be a challenge, Steve, because they might not be getting the right or the most professional guidance that is out there. And this is clearly a problem in the era of COVID-19. 
when the government uh, are making great efforts to get their message out. I should also say that, finally, Steve, that business support agencies, the formal business support agencies, aren't always as well connected to sectors like catering and others that ethnic minorities tend to be concentrated in, like retailing. I get you, I get you. Now, Shahab um, said that up to 30% of curry houses, from his own anecdotal research, um, he felt that they may collapse as a result of COVID-19. Now, 30% of curry houses in Britain, we're talking about potentially thousands of restaurants, tens if not hundreds of thousands of jobs. Is Shahab right? And, and, And what can be done to prevent this? What Shab says doesn't surprise me. Even before COVID-19, Steve, the Bangladeshi catering sector, the curry uh, sector was facing dire challenges. A few years ago, um, the, the challenges were so acute that Lord Karen Bill Moria set up a curry committee um, in, the, in, in Parliament to alert policymakers, parliamentarians to this particular challenge. Even then, Steve, the, the the, the sort of consequences were dire for the sector. Curry houses employ around 100,000 people with an annual uh, sales a turnover of 4.2 billion. And y- y- we can see why the sector is facing so many challenges. The trend is for more adventurous eating. So in Birmingham, you'll see lots of Vietnamese, Turkish and Mexican restaurants, for example. Even large chain stores are getting into the act. So, for example, supermarkets are one of the most prolific sellers of uh, curries. And large chains of sort of pubs and restaurants are also selling or entering this market. There was one report that the, the largest seller of curries is now the pub chain JD Weatherspoon. So these problems are the, the, the sort of problems of com- competition and newcomers into the market have been sort of accentuated and even compounded by COVID-19. So the estimate that Shab gives isn't out uh, out of line with industry estimates, and it could actually be worse. Now, having said that, the question is, what can we do about it? Um, Well, one of the reasons we're studying the Bangladeshi catering sector is because of the protestations or the concerns of people like Shab. People like Shab are pointing to us and to his fellow restaurateurs that if there is a future, it has to be by upgrading their services. COVID-19 is providing, um, paradoxically, a a brilliant opportunity to reflect again on the kind of business models that uh, traditionally Bangladeshi caterers have used. There has been very little investment in new tech and very little investment in skills, and those are areas that we need to focus on if we're going to um, have a future post-COVID. Shabbat talked about how, for now, he's restarted just as a takeaway trade and that many other curry houses are doing that, um, that same thing at the moment, takeaways only. And he said that will at best enable them to tick over through yeah. um, this in-between period. But more worryingly, he reminded me of all our experiences of curry houses. I mean, we, we love great food. Curry houses provide that. We love lots of fun. Often at the end of the good night out, uh, we, we pack into those curry houses. They're often back-to-back. And for the medium term, those crowded days, they won't be coming back, and it's going to hit the sector hard, isn't it? It is, and it's very worrying. The scenario you paint, Steve, you know, which is a group of friends going out for a lively evening of entertainment, finished off 
with uh, a visit to the Baltic Quarter, a curry. Well, that's part and parcel of the British way of life. And uh, if you take that away, you're taking away the very essence of what going out for a curry means. And so that is a major, major concern. Listening to Shab, he made the point that it's going to be very difficult for him to survive with those uh, the social distancing measures. So the concerns are legitimate and they're acute. And this sort of reinforces the point that colleagues and I have, and others have been making that um, it really is necessary for caterers and others in the hospitality sector to sort of to maybe think again and reflect on the kind of new business models that might be available. Shad has gone into delivery, he's not done that before. And I think we need to really explore other scenarios. And I think in this part of this exploration, organizations like my own, like Aston Center for Growth, business support providers need to get much closer to people like Shab and develop collaboratively potential solutions that um, Shab and his colleagues might follow. Of course, yeah. And, and, and for me, um, one of the most salient points that Shab made, uh, and you kind of hinted at it earlier on, was about prices. You know, rightly or wrongly, going for a curry was always seen as a great but a cheap night out. Yes, they pack them in and they produce delicious but effectively fast restaurant food. Now that they can't open restaurants, and when they can, there'll be a lot more spaces in between, it's going to cut their revenues. And Shab talked about a new approach by him and the whole sector, really. It might mean they need to raise their prices and have a, a proper, decent um, invoice for their services, if you like, to survive. Do you think he's right? Definitely. The traditional model in this sector has always been low tech, low wages, and low prices. As Shab's indicated, this is unlikely to survive in the future. And um, major, major changes will have to be introduced if we're to depart from this model. Shab and others that we've interviewed are realizing that this is the case. And now, encouragingly, people like Shab, as you've heard, are saying that we need to invest in staff. They themselves are saying that we need to explore radical new options like investing significantly in training and taking IT, digital ways of marketing seriously. Yeah, Monda, it, it's, it's going to be a really interesting time for the sector. And uh, I look forward to hearing more um, from you and your colleagues and also from Shab and the sector about how they're adapting in the next few months. M many thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure. Yes, a big thank you there to Professor Monda Ram, the Director of the Centre for Research in Ethnic Minority Entrepreneurship here at Aston Business School, and also to Shab Udin, the owner and operator of Streetly Bolting. Uh, Monda will be joining us again in a week or so when we will look at how corner shops and community supermarkets, another important sector in the Asian business world, has adapted to COVID-19. Aston means business. SMEs adapting to COVID-19 challenges. Thanks for listening.